job, guys. Hey, thanks, Steve Burns. Be praying for Peter Revizzo. He uh, fell ill this morning, suddenly. So uh, Steve has been filling in, doing a great job. Denny, where's Denny at? We don't ever want you to go back to Taiwan. You're going to stay here and play the piano. You must play piano here all time, okay? All time. You know, next week is our Christmas service. It's entitled, When Love Came Down. Now, you, I didn't think of that. I stole that from a, you know, a magazine I found in my mailbox. And I thought, what a cool title. Because that is what God has done. When love came down. To understand the birth of Jesus, we have to go way back in time. That, that God didn't just, you know... One day go, man, they're really in trouble. Hey, Jesus, get down there. From the very beginning of time, God saw mankind's sinful nature. When he made us with the choice of having free will, he realized that we chose the wrong. That in fact, we choose more wrong than right most of the time. Can you relate to that? Romans 7, I want to do good, but I don't want to do good. I know the law, but I want to choose this. God knowing that, and that, come, that nature comes with him giving us our choice. So he realizes this, this, and he sets a plan in motion, a plan of history. Who here loves history? I love history. As a man who used to hate reading, I love history. I didn't like reading very much. But I'm going to tell you a story about, about Jesus. And my lesson entitled this morning is, He is Coming. He is coming from the ancient days of old. He's coming. Back in the Old Testament, in the first five books of the Bible, it was called the law. God was talking directly through a prophet to his people. Those are the five books. That was awesome. That's Moses. That's Abraham. That's Isaac and Jacob. It's an amazing account. But after that, after, after the, the law, there came a time where the people wanted to be like the rest of the nations, and they wanted a king. And God says, wait a minute, I'm your king. They go, no, we want to be like them. Give us a king. And so he gave them a king, and that was King Saul. Saul disobeyed God. God removed him, and he rose up King David. And in this part of the map here, this was, the, uh, this was a, a kingdom that David and Solomon reigned over. And it was a powerful monarchy. It was an amazing monarchy because David focused his relationship with God and God protected them from all these foreign nations around Egypt, the Hittites, the Phoenicians, the Philistines. It was amazing. Then he had a son named Solomon. He asked for wisdom. God granted him wisdom. He expanded this physical monarchy. But then Solomon started straying away from God and started disobeying God. God says, hey, don't have many wives. He chose to have many wives. He even chose wives who were from the outskirts of the area. And so he began to worship not only God, but he added other gods to worshiping God. You know how you, have, you worship God, then you worship your computer and the internet and iPods and iPads and have the lay and we get drunk. Same thing there, there was happening there. But they had a physical other God that he would worship. And so the kingdom was divided. 
It got broken up in two. It was called the north, which is called Israel. And they said, our, our new temple is going to be around here. And this is Jerusalem. Ten tribes were here. Two tribes were here. And look at the surround. Look how they grew. They grew more powerful because they were divided. So after this time, Solomon's children broke up the monarchy. And then they were prone to all these different nations. And so this is the history of how the kingdom broke up because they deviated from the words of God. They strayed from the words of God. They said, hey, I know what it says, but I'm going to deviate. They added other idol gods and kept worshiping the Lord their God. They didn't just, they didn't just throw away God. They just added additional things to God. They said, this is a God too. And God handed down discipline. The nations of Assyria and Babylon... And Assyria destroys Israel's capital in Samaria in 722 B.C. Now we're going to look here. Is this, what's important is understand is that these nations only came because the, the disciples, the, the people of God, strayed from the Bible. And this, this analogy of Assyria is the same analogy as, as your sin. If you deviate from the words of God, your sins will come into your life and carry you away. Just like it did them. But this happened in a physical way. Because they stopped uh, making God their only God. The Assyrians came over and took the people of God away. Literally. The Assyrians were, were a brutal people. That's modern day uh, Iraq. Iran. The Middle East there. They would uh, hang their enemies on a stick. And if they really didn't like you, they'd take your skin and they'd start to peel you off, peel your skin off your muscles. They were a brutal kind. They didn't want to take all the children of Israel because they didn't want to care for the kids. And, you know, when you, when you move and deport all these people, it, it's, you know, it's a logistical nightmare. It's, you got to feed them. It's a, you know, you got to camp them. So they just decided to grab the children and just dash their heads on the rocks. Why feed them when you can just crush them and move on? These were a very brutal people. This happened... Because they deviated from the words of God. It's a great parenting analogy. You as a parent, you deviate. The sins of your parenthood could crush your children. It's a, there's so many analogies here to, to, to draw from. Adding to your gods. We can add easily during Christmas. We can add to God. We can add so many things to worshiping God. And, and feel good about it in our Christianity. So as time passes on, they go into captivity, not only the Assyrians, but the Babylonians also attack uh, the lower part. And they make Judah submit in 605. So the northern part of Israel was destroyed. The southern part submitted to the Babylonians. In other words, they said, hey, you're going to pay us now. So and so you can, it's like, it's like, a, like, a, like the mafia. You're going to pay us and we'll take care of you. Make sure nothing happens to you. That's what they did. Okay? And so in the book of Daniel, the time of the setting is that Daniel is taken during this time. In 2 Kings 24, verse 1, it says, During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. Okay? 
Babylon became their daddy. Okay? And so during this time, this young teenager, Daniel, was taken from his home and he was brought to Babylon. And three of his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, went along with them. And when they got there, they changed their names. Teens, how would you feel if we decided, you know what, we're going to change your name. You're no longer going to be called Hananiah, we're going to call you Shadrach. I just like the way that rolls off my tongue. Okay, Michelle, we're going to call you Meshach. I like the way that feels. You look like a Meshach. And Azariah, we're going to call you Abendahu, Abendago. That's your new name. And these guys served under the king of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, Daniel spent his entire life in Babylon. From a small boy to an old man, and he died in Babylon. So this is the setting. This is the setting of history that God is going to do. Here are, here are four guys. Now, if you read the book of Daniel, there's a great story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar goes, hey, how come you didn't bow down to me? Because we, we, don't, we don't play like that. We don't, we don't roll that way. What? Get the fire ready. Remember that story? I'm going to throw you in the fire. Okay? So those are the same guys. Even though their names were changed, their convictions didn't change. Make sense? So here we go. So here is the, here's the area. Now the Bible calls these nations, they call their, they're going to come from the north. And when you, when you read this, when you go back into your own Bible study, and when you look on the map, Babylon is from the east. Well, is the Bible wrong? Is there a contradiction? What's going on? It's the Bible says, shouldn't, isn't the north up here? Well, in order to get to Judah, they had to go through, through the Euphrates River, and they had to come down, which gives them the north. See that? Huh? They couldn't have crossed this player because they wouldn't have made it. That's the Arabian Desert. No one makes it past there. So they had to go up and around. So when they came up, they came from the north. This is their empire. These are the empires of, of that time. And this study is about he is coming, that God is in control of every empire. He's in the control of every nation, as we're going to see right now. So and this is the gate of Babylon. So when, you, when Daniel first walked in there, this is what Daniel saw. This is the Ishtar Gate. This is the entrance into the Babylonian city. You can see that at the British Museum. It's an amazing picture there. It's an amazing, this is a, this is a remodeled version of it, but it's an amazing feat of beauty, majesty, and power. Babylon was amazing. That's the Ishtar Gate. That's what Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego would have saw when they first entered this great city. In Daniel chapter 2, let's start our Bible study. It reads this. And you can turn your Bible to Daniel chapter 2 because we're going to read some more out of your Bible. It said, Now, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And he had these wise astrologers there. But what Nebuchadnezzar does is he says, Look, it, you tell me what my dream is. And the wise men are like, No, 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 king. It's better if you just tell us your dream and we'll interpret it for you. He goes, No. You tell me the dream that I had because it disturbed me. And so they go, they go, that's impossible. We only can help you if you tell us the dream. And so in verse 1, it says, In the second year, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, 
I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. And they were like, no. They were trying to get him to tell him the dream, but he would not. So what happens in verse 12 is that this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So that the, the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Because when they brought them over initially, it was to train them to be wise men for the king. So they were kind of in that group. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Notice that. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king, into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. You know, there is a dream that God puts in a pagan king's sleep. First notice that, that God not only works through the spiritual, he works through the ungodly. God works through anyone he wants to. And this is interesting because at that time, they were the most powerful nation of the known earth. They were amazing. So this is the dream. Look in your Bibles. In Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel 2, verse 31. This is what happens. And so Daniel asks for some time with the king. He's very tactful with the guard. You know, whenever you're in a stressful situation, you can learn from Daniel, it's best to be tactful. Not to freak out. Daniel didn't freak out. Hey, what? He's going to kill. He's like, hey, can I, can I talk to you for a second? Why is that a harsh decree? Oh, ooh, I see. And so what happens is like Daniel goes and prays to God. And God gives him the revelation of what the dream was. And then he goes in front of the king. Now remember, the king hasn't told anybody what the dream was. Because he wants to see if they know. So in verse 31, this is what he tells the king. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue. An enormous, dazzling statue. Awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff. On a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Whenever they live, he has made you ruler over them all, and you are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. And just as you saw that feet and toes are partly baked of clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. 
yet it will have some of its strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, O king, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. This, the great God has shown that the king, this will take place in the future. This dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Can you imagine the reaction of Nebuchadnezzar? Can you imagine coming into fellowship and saying, Man, I had a dream last night. Hold on. I'm going to tell you your dream. Wouldn't that just freak you out? That would freak me out. I mean, I've had some pretty scary dreams in my time. Imagine this scary dream and someone knows about your dream, like they were in your dream. And there's his dream is of this enormous statue. Four kingdoms are told, and he is the head of gold, and there's going to be three after you. Three that are less inferior, but three will come after you. And then there's this rock. But it's not grabbed from human hands. It's going to hit the statue, not in the head, not in the chest, not in the thighs, but it's going to hit it right at its feet. Here's the statue. Head of gold, chest of silver, bronze, legs of iron, and the feet of partly of baked clay. His current empire is this, the Babylonian empire. He is the head. He is the best. And what follows are four kingdoms. And during, during God, when God establishes his kingdom or his special time of coming to earth, it's going to be during the era of the fourth one. He is not going to come. The rock doesn't hit him here. It doesn't hit him here. It doesn't hit him here. It hits him right here, right in the feet. So we have to ask ourselves, what empire was that? Daniel was foretelling the future that nobody knows about. So it's an enormous statue. So let's take a look at the head of gold. The head of gold, as, as, as God said in the dream, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the head of gold. And they rule that area from 612 B.C. to 539 B.C. And if you go in Daniel chapter 5, there's a story about the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. His name is Belshazzar. And, and when, when, when Babylon destroyed the temple of Jerusalem, they took all the articles inside and they kept them in their storage locker. And then in Daniel 5, Belshazzar says, Hey, all that good stuff from the Jews and all that, all that stuff from the temple of their gods, we're going we're gonna to drink out of it and have a party. And so he has this great party. And this is what God writes. And then during the party, there's this, there's this hand, like a big old hand, and it's writing something on the wall, on these stone walls. Isn't that kind of freaky? And, and they write, he writes the word, Mene Tekel. Many, many tickle Paris. And, it's, and, then, and then they bring in, they go, Daniel, Daniel, can you tell us what this means? Daniel, tell us. You told my grandfather his dream. Can you tell us what this means? And so he writes, Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. That's not encouraging. Tekle, you've been weighed on scales and found wanting. That's definitely not encouraging. And Perez, 
Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck. He was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius, the Mede, took over the kingdom at age 62. Now, a little note of history here. Cyrus, the Persian ruler, he overthrew the Medes to become the uncontested ruler of this empire. And the Persian Medes defeated the Babylonian Empire in 539. They were the next prophecy, what God predicted. They were the chest of arms and silver. They were a little inferior to the Babylonians, but they took over after Nebuchadnezzar's grandson um, made a boo-boo. God told them, your time is wanting. What does that tell us about God? God knows the future, but God can also work in your heart in that future. God can move your heart. What else can we learn? The chest and arms. This was the Persian rule in 538. This is an amazing time of, 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 for God's people. Silver, which is of lesser value than gold, symbolized the inferior status of this empire. Under Persian rule in 538 BC, the Cyrus, who's the king of Persia, he makes this decree. He says, I'm going to help restore the Jewish community. And they were allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. Here is Ezra writing about it. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. Let's just stop for a second. Number one, Ezra considered Jeremiah the Bible. And Jeremiah was a prophet in Judah before the Babylonians came. He says, if you don't turn around and start repenting and, or, and honoring God, we're going to be taken in captivity for 70 years. So we better knock it off. And they said, okay, you prophet, get in that little barrel and be quiet. They shut him up. And so this is was being fulfilled the, the exact time of 70 years that God says, you know what? I'm going to send them back. And so Ezra is reiterating the truth of what God had spoken 70 years prior is happening now. This is what the king of Cyrus Persia said. The Lord God, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Where does he come up with this kind of stuff? And any of his people among you, may their God be with them and let them go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. That is amazing. God is moving in the hearts of this Persian king. If you don't believe that's true, they found it. They found the decree. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. This cylinder is called cuneiform writing. It's got a lot of nice, cool words in there we can't read. But there are guys who read this and guys who interpret this. And the interpretation was, his decree was, I'm going to send the people back to their hometown so they can worship their God. That was their policy of, of leading and ruling their kingdom. 
Their policy was like, hey, we conquered you, and we want you to go back and worship your God. This was already known by God. God moved in Cyrus's heart. If you want to go to the British Museum, go during the wintertime. It's cheaper, and go see that for yourself. It's an amazing, it's an amazing moment of faith when you know that God is working through people. He works through kings. He works through leaders of nations. God works powerfully through that. It's an amazing. And this thing says, that's what it says. The scattered people will go back to their hometowns. Now, if you thought that was kind of weird, check this out. Isaiah the prophet, 200 years before that happened, said this. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. You know, when, when, when Isaiah was saying this, he doesn't have a clue who Cyrus is. Who's Cyrus? He wasn't even born. He wasn't even a twinkle in his daddy's eye. He was nothing. He didn't exist. Who is Cyrus? Who is this guy? But God knew. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. This is when, the, when Jerusalem wasn't sacked yet. Jerusalem was doing pretty good still. He says, they will set my exiles free. In other words, God already knew they were going to stray. But not for a price or reward. In other words, when Cyrus does it, we're not, we're not going to have to bribe him. Hey, let us go back and build our temple. Here's some shekels of gold. No. God puts it on Cyrus's heart. That's what's amazing about this passage. Well in advance. But under Persian rule, this is what happens. The Persians paid to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Ezra writes about that. The temple articles taken by Nebuchadnezzar were returned to their rightful place in Jerusalem. And then in 457, the king of Persia at that time was Artaxerxes of Persia. And he sent Ezra to Judah to, to establish religious reform and give them spiritual guidance. And Ezra writes about that in Ezra 7. And then Nehemiah is the governor of Judah from 444 to 430. And while in Judah, he rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem and the supplies were given by the Persians. Amazing. What God says, hey, you're going to be in exile, but I'm going to reestablish the temple. And he does. He puts it on the hearts of men. What has God been putting on your heart? What has God put on your heart this Christmas? What has God put on your heart this, this next 30 days? How are you going to live? Do you deny what God's put there and you, and you replace it with another God? Or are you really going to listen to God this, this Christmas? Christmas is not about, not about buying stuff. If you're going to buy something, buy and invest in a relationship with each other, with God. Fine, you want to buy a little toy, knock yourself out. But your primary, your primary investment is relationships with God and disciples. This is what God was doing. He's bringing people back to the temple. And after the Persians, they are pretty powerful. But there was a young boy who grew up in Macedon. And his father was named Philip of Macedon. And he was Greek. Does anyone know who this is? Alexander, Alexander the Great. Rose up. You can watch him on the History Channel. And Greece began to rule. And there was this epic battle between Alexander and Darius on the battlefield. And Alexander's army was 40,000. 40,000 men. And the Persian army was 300,000 in one battle. And Alexander won. 
He won by a nice little cavalry maneuver, spread him out to the right, saw a gap, and shot in right at Darius. And Darius retreated, and his whole army was in disarray, and they got butchered that day. In 332 BC, Alexander the Great conquered the kingdom of Persia. That is a fact. It's funny because the statue said it was one, two, and this is the third. <clears throat> 75. After, after Alexander dies at age, age 32, he gets some kind of flu or some kind of bug bites him, and he's coming back home, and he dies. And he dies actually in Babylon, which is interesting. And, and four of his generals took over. And one of, the generals, one of the generals that took over was covering the land of where Jerusalem was at. And his name was Antiochus IV. He was the fourth generation down of his father, the general of Alexander. And he tried to force the Jews to abandon their law and adopt to the Greek culture. He was forcing them to change their convictions. Our culture is not forcing us, but our culture is pressuring us to change our convictions. And this happens in between the Bible. Like Malachi is, is the, was the last book written, and then there's this guy named, uh, well, this is the history, uh, Antiochus gets, gets, so, gets so angry, he goes into the temple of God, he goes in there and he sacrifices a pig on the, uh, on the covenant, on, on the altar, on the Ark of the Covenant, he takes a pig and he guts it. Can you, can you imagine this happening? It infuriates, infuriates the people. In response, Judas Maccabeus, he led a revolt against him, and they won. And that's how we celebrate Hanukkah. This was the Hanukkah dedication. They rededicated the temple because of the convictions. Hey, we're not going to change because you're making us change. And I hope that you have that conviction that you're not going to change because the culture's putting pressure on me. Because the culture is always putting pressure on us to make us like that. Our culture is based on one thing. Self. Self. Our economy, the goal of, uh, the, uh, the goal of our government, not that I love our government, I respect and honor and I'm obedient to it. But they want you to spend more money to get it going. Can you, can you just think through that for a second? Spend more to get it going. Buy more to get it going. There's just something wrong with that picture. There's something wrong with that picture. We cannot afford to lower our convictions for any culture. And a good example is the Maccabeans. They say, hey, we're not doing it. Now, they, had a, they, they actually went into battle, but we have to go into battle with different kinds of weapons. Then after, after the, the get of gold, the Babylonians, after the Persians... Alexander the Great, there comes this next part of, the, part of the statue, the legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. This is the statue. This is the fourth one. This is Julius Caesar and the Roman Empire defeating the Greeks and taking control of the area of Jerusalem and the whole area. The Roman Empire, General Pompey, awesome generals, started and established this amazing empire. They conquered the Greeks in 63 B.C. In 37 B.C., Herod the Great was appointed king of Judea by Octavian, other known as Caesar Augustus, 
and Mark, who knows Mark Anthony? He was in love with Cleopatra, you know? You know, you know he's, not, he's not a Latin singer. He's not one of those guys. He was a general. And, uh, and Octavian, uh, Octavian uh, defeated Mark Anthony to become the, fir- uh, the, 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 the first Caesar, Augustus, of the empire. And, and Augustus was the emperor during the birth of Jesus. Now, in future emperors, they attempt to destroy the church. But it wasn't Augustus. This is the meaning of the rock that was cut out. This is the fourth one. While you were watching... A rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue where? On its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. That's the Roman Empire. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And God says in verse 44 in Daniel, remember this? In the time of those kings... What kings? The kings of Rome. Though God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold pieces. The rock was the time when love came down. It was a time when he is coming for the first time. Jesus was born between 6 and 4 B.C. Wait a minute, not zero? Of course not zero. There had no zero on the calendar. It's either 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. He was born here because we know that King Herod died in 4 B.C. It's a fact. We found his his grave. Died, 4 B.C. He tried to kill every two-year-old. So we know that he was, and between those two dates, Jesus was born. We know that Jesus was crucified around 30 A.D. Three days after he died, he rose from the dead and was seen by more than 500 people. This is the meaning of the rock, King Nebuchadnezzar, that God is going to come down from heaven to earth. He's coming down. Jesus, the rock, the timing that Jesus was born was amazing. The timing. Babylonian, nope, didn't come there. Persian, no, didn't come there. The Greeks, nope, it was the Roman Empire. The most dominant empire of its time. And God established the church when the rock hit the feet of the statue. This was the prophecy from 700 BC and 500 BC when Daniel was telling King Nebuchadnezzar. This was the prophecy that God will come down to earth, the rock, and it will destroy and be better than all these kingdoms because this kingdom can never be destroyed. You can kill us and it still won't get destroyed. You can try to kill, and the Roman emperors, they try to snuff out the Christians, systematically snuff them out, and they couldn't do it. The more they tried, the more it grew. You know when it really got bad? When Rome, the Roman emperor Constantine became a Christian. Then everyone wanted to become a Christian. And the, and, the, and, the, and the attendance of Christian churches went up, but the convictions went down. 
They no longer, they stop no longer to live by the, the teachings of Jesus. And this is what Peter writes. This is what Jesus causes men in their hearts. A stone that causes people to stumble. And a rock that makes them fall. You want to know why? Because men and women don't want to change. And when you don't want to change for Jesus, you're going to stumble and you're going to fall. He says they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. He says, but you, disciples, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. This Christmas, if you obey the words of Jesus, you will stumble, but you will not stay down. You know, the word in the New Testament for fall away is the Greek word to stumble. And when the apostles stumbled and fell away, they got right back up. You may stumble and fall, but you get right back up. You get up, and you brush yourself off. It takes more character to get up than to stay down and quit. It takes a lot more character. Yeah, it's a little embarrassing to get up when you fall down. Believe me, I've done it many times in my life. For real. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to go to a staff meeting and wear your shirt inside out. Believe me, I did it last week. Bro goes, hey, bro, is, is this tag right? I'm like, oh, my shirt's inside out. Ha, ha, ha. Well, I wasn't trying to make a fashion statement. It's embarrassing, but I appreciate the correction. I don't want to walk around all day with my shirt inside out. Imagine my evangelism, you weirdo. The first coming of Jesus. The first coming. If we're going to understand how God works through time, and God works through nations, and God works through history. This is what we can learn. It was predicted by God through King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And also, Daniel had the same dream in, in, in chapter 7. And Jesus was born during a Pax Romana, meaning, in other words, it was Rome's greatest time of peace. They weren't at, they weren't at war with anyone. And that was the time Jesus was born. Imagine you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna come down to earth, and you don't want there to be super turmoil. You want there to be peace. He was born during the greatest peacetime of Rome. He was born of David's line through Joseph and Mary. Did you know there was two Bethlehems? One, in, one up north of Nazareth and then one down south near Jerusalem. And Joseph lived up there. Can you imagine the temptation of going five miles or 150 miles? Can you imagine the temptation? The justification. Oh, no, you're fine, bro. Go north. Go north. They don't know. It's only Rome. We don't like Rome. Go ahead. Joseph travels 150 miles down south to register with a pregnant wife, with no car, but a donkey. And he goes down, and this is important because if, if he would have said, nah, we're going to go to this Bethlehem and kind of sneak around and, and, and cheat, on, cheat on the census, the prophecy would have never been fulfilled about the Messiah. He wouldn't have been born in the right Jerusalem, in Bethlehem. But since Joseph was a man of character. He says, you know what? I can go the five miles and, and check in, but I was born down there. I'm going down there. 
That's where I'm from. And I hope we can take a good example of Joseph's, char Joseph's character. He does what's right, even though it's hard. And so, and Jesus came away, came here to do away with sin once and for all, and that was prophesied in Daniel. This is the meaning of the vision in 500 B.C. Let us not deviate this Christmas. Let's put the Christ in Christmas this year in your heart. Amen. Amen. To God be the glory.